Hey, welcome to the podcast. I'm Rich from Trapping Inc. TV. And this evening we have on the line or the internet, uh, we have Duncan Abercrombie uh, from the company, ADC Company, which Animal Damage Control Company, Bushman Inc. here in Alberta. Duncan, how are you this evening? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me, Rich. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> You're... um. I think I first ran into you probably six, seven years ago. Uh, I'm trying to remember which one of the uh, uh, rendezvous, Alberta uh, Trapping, the Alberta Trappers Association puts on a big rendezvous, and and yeah. we have lots of lots of wild people show up to it, and there's been some pretty interesting competitions. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> I think you know you're going. I think it was your brother that I first saw uh, him, and was it? Um, who was it? They, they were they were doing the snowshoe run. They were running doing the hundred yard uh, snowshoe run on on the um, uh, football field in where was that uh, up north uh, Grimshaw. And oh yeah. They, uh, was it him and AJ or was it was it uh, Justin? Justin Wasisu. Anyway, I here you have them both. <laughs> here you have these these trappers, and they've they've all got a, a, a whole beaver slung over their shoulders. And this is in June or July, so it's nice and hot. They've got on a pair of snowshoes, and they got to run down the length of uh, of the football field, 100 yards. They got to turn around and come back. And of course, the winner. This is part of the ultimate trapper competition. And uh, right as uh, I think it was your brother Malcolm, yeah, and right right as uh, they were about to cross the the. Uh, uh, the finish line there, there was a little jostling, you know, like any good race, you know, if you're not rubbing in that racing, right? <laughs> Anything involved like my brother, you could pretty much guarantee that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty spectacular. But then I think the next year you won that event in that, I don't know, it must've been like uh Rambo Viet Cong inspired uh, course that they had at Drayton Valley where it was, you guys were in your, your waders and you're up to your oh, waist in mud and God. water. Yeah, that's still that is still talked about amongst those who took part in that is one of the worst things ever experienced. I watched I watched you when you finished because you, you won that one. You you uh, yeah. come around and your big old long legs helped you out there. I'll tell you that. Oh, I did. It did. Yeah. You come yeah, around and, and and you you collapsed there on the on the shoreline in in, in the mud and the water, and I could I could. Feel your lungs burning from where I was standing up on the shore. <laughs> I think it took me about a week to try and recover from that. Yeah, it was such a, yes. a seemingly simple task that really uh, was just more than oh, people to be. have. People have no understanding what that mud is like, do they? No, no, and especially in waders when you got the boots, it just yeah sucking you down and holding you back, and not to mention you got a fifty pound beaver on your back, so it really elevates it. Exactly. Well, let's talk a little bit about you, Duncan. How old are you? Are you? And um, you know, where were you? Where were you born? And how did you get started trapping? Well, I'm 30 years old now. Um, well, of course, grew up east of Edmonton on uh, Cooking Lake uh, with our family on an island there, actually. Um, so it was a relatively secluded environment. Um, you know, I still went to school and all that, but it was pretty much just us. Uh, in a cabin in the bush growing up and that's pretty much how we made it work. So my brother and I, from the time we were, well, as soon as we could start running around, we were basically in the bush running around and terrorizing the forest. And, uh, <laughs> it was pretty much, yeah. My favorite outfit when I was a kid was a loincloth. 
<laughs> you guys are well so, to do. We didn't have, we couldn't afford loan costs. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, it was a real luxury. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, yeah, my brother and I would routinely watch uh, Last of the Mohicans, one of our favorite movies, and we had a, a big old uh, treasure chest that we had filled with homemade weapons. Uh, we had a bunch of fire hardened knives and bows and spears and all that, and we. We'd get all jacked up watching the movie, and then we'd just grab all our stuff and head out the bush for the day. <laughs> that sounds like that sounds like absolutely the perfect childhood. I'm telling you what. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Those the, the dead birch trees. They just really, yeah. There was a lot of uh, smashing of the trees. I think every kid has had a fire hardened uh, arrow and, and knife. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It actually it went over fine until we got the we learned that. The door going to uh, Bill, my father's uh, uh, skinning room, You, could, if you threw a spear hard enough, you could actually stick it into the door. Not sure how we oh. figured that out, but once we figured it out, we thought it'd be a good idea to just throw them at it for the day while he was gone. Oh. And uh, <laughs> that basically ended the whole fire hardened spear thing. <laughs> so we had to find that- other ways to amuse ourselves after that. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll bet you when he caught you, you wish you had more on than just the loincloth. <laughs> oh yeah, no yeah, it was uh yeah yeah. Some memories it you was, don't forget. A little bit of sta- little bit of standing up for eating for a while. <laughs> so yeah, just yeah. <laughs> oh oh, that's perfect. So you yeah you uh you started trapping uh at an early age. Well, and that was just it because we're on the island. So, the, you know, my earliest memories trapping are, are trapping muskrats with my brother and father. Uh, and uh, my mom would come up once in a while as well and help us out. And we basically just went around the, the lake catching muskrats and mink. And um, that was pretty much how it started off. How did you target them back then? Uh, well, we didn't have the submarine traps. So it was all digging, digging out the uh, lodges and putting in uh, uh, 110s. Uh, body grips and catch oh, right them in the lodge. Okay. Yeah, right in the lodge. Yeah, yeah, that was our thing. So we all had our, we had a routine with the shovel and capping them and getting them in, and it actually it worked pretty good. It's just you know it's kind of a hard way to do it, but it was fun. Kept us active. Froze my toes plenty of times, and yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny because when I started, and I keep forgetting the age difference. I'm I'm twice your age, but. When I started, we all everybody had a a zero or or number one um, uh, uh, long spring, right? And yeah. you would you would have yourself a little stick and a pole about three inches in diameter, or whatever, and you just shove it down into the water on an angle near shore, and it would have a little step on it where you'd set the trap, and uh, you know above that you'd put the carrot. We did this hundreds of times every day. And, you know, mm. the muskrat would come swimming along, see the carrot and go, go to walk up the stick and run into the trap on the way and over the side and, and drown. And now today, you know, we can't do it fast enough with colony traps and with, uh, with floats, right? <laughs> oh yeah. It's yeah. Yeah. The, well, I mean, I think those, those, uh, colony traps, those subs are, there's just, I can't, there's no better way to go for me. <clears throat> what, what's, what's the biggest catch you ever had in a colony trap? Uh, 27. What? 27. <laughs> what was special about that set? 
And how, and how big of colony? Uh, how big a colony trap was this? Uh, it wasn't even that big. I bet you I could have broke. I bet I I know I could have broke thirty. I I bet you I could have almost got forty if I had a bigger one because I actually had to cut the trap in half to get them all out. They were so wedged in I couldn't open the door up to uh, get them out. But it was a uh, not a, not a big jumbo one. I think it was only like a what would it have been maybe a ten inch or twelve inch diameter. Wow sub and so oh, it was correct. absolutely packed so but what was special about that set well i just knew where they were it was but this is so this is actually doing uh animal damage control work there was a an area i can't really disclose but it was an area uh in an urban environment that um it was part of their um they had a whole bunch of these dikes and little ditches and things set up as a part of their clean water uh, irrigation canal they had set up before the water left town it had to go through these series and sort of get filtered out right so right, they had all right, these right. man-made little berms and everything everywhere that were it, it, I mean, it was literally a perfect environment for muskrats yeah. and it never froze out it was full of food very little predation um, I only ever saw one mink there it was the biggest fattest mink I've ever seen in my life uh, it just <laughs> must have been gorging itself but, oh no uh, kidding Oh yeah, so we you just go around in the UTV and uh, you wouldn't even believe it, but every single day, so we were we were running um, at that point. Uh, we called it Big Red. It was some big red Honda UTV had a big box yep. in the back, and uh, we had a mountain filled of muskrats every single day, and we would be there for a month at a time. It was just unbelievable how many uh, muskrats were there. You you just couldn't believe it. Well, so and the reason just... that the trap works so good is I just look in the water and you'd see. There was so much activity, you could see where the water was disturbed, like a little trail, um, no wider than the trap itself, going in and out of the berms where you knew they were really active, and you just stick them there. It was the easiest oh. trapping I've ever done in my life. No kidding. No kidding. Yeah. You, you dream about that again, don't you? Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> and we the, the worst part about it is that we had to do it in the summertime. Oh, and we yeah. we tried so hard to get it in the spring, and we just, they wouldn't. They had rules about the, the ice and the, the vegetation and all that. They didn't, they didn't want the activity then, so it was frustrating because it, it would have been, I, I mean, the, we, 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 I bet you we could have pulled 100 grand in rats out of there if we got there in the spring. So like thousands of them? Oh, yeah, thousands upon thousands, yeah. Really? Wow. Oh, yeah. I, I was taking 100 a day. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that's a lot of skin <laughs> oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, so and and no predation i mean it, it it's so hilarious when you talk about predation because i mean mink I, I think the 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 um you know a mink is is pro probably weighs half of what uh, of a big muskrat you know like, I mean, oh, the yeah. big muskrat yeah. weighs more than the mink does, and, and but that mink is so tough. And my my best ever catch in a colony trap, I'm embarrassed to say after you catch 27, but I got 14. <laughs> and, and one mink in there. Did you ever get a mink in one? <laughs> no, no, never. I never had a mink. I've had them in the floats. So I've never had them in the, the, the colony trap. Well, I, I got the the... the, the when there was 14 in there and I pulled this one out and all of a sudden it's got a hairy tail. And so oh, it's a mink, right? And that was, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I've, I've had a lot of mink, uh, like, um, 
if you if you set your float too close to to uh, vegetation, you know they, they'll dive mm-hmm. down and grab a, a dead muskrat, drag it over on the vegetation and eat it. I've had that happen. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. They, they, they're they're a remarkable little critter. Did you see? And you talk about ADC work, and we'll talk lots more about it later. But I just this popped into my head, and so it popped in my head. I better talk about it before it pops out. <laughs> but did you see that otter in uh, Vancouver? Vancouver got into the Japanese gardens, and they have these uh, ones. I heard about them. Yeah, well, they have these these koi, and, and some of them are twenty and thirty years old, and they're. <laughs> I believe it or not, worth tens of thousands of dollars. I, I didn't know yeah. goldfish could be that valuable, but oh, yeah. it was there. It was there last year. I know it'd be there. It was there in 2018, just just in the fall time, and and then they kind of thought they they maybe got rid of it. And, the, and this otter was like in, in it's downtown Vancouver, and they actually had trail or uh, not trail cam, <laughs> traffic cam pictures of this of this otter crossing roads, getting to the. Getting to the the koi pond, and so then it, it finally went away after eating. I forget like a hundred thousand dollars worth of, of fish. And then last, <laughs> last year, yeah, last year in September, it showed up again. <laughs> and oh now, boy! Now, now the uh, the bunny huggers weren't weren't quite so uh, you know determined that it was going to be a catch and release uh, setup because now this otter was coming back every year, right? <laughs> Well, I, you know, a lot of people don't realize how much otters travel. I mean, they travel a serious distance. It would be nothing for them to come back on a pretty serious release. Oh, so I I'm doing otter right now, and uh, yeah. I just just got back from from a week on the line, and it is nothing for otters to to jump out on on a on one of my trails and do eight nine kilometers in a day. You know? And oh then, yeah, yeah. You know, then up and down the the creek to boot and, and that kind of stuff. Like I mean, they it. What I find the most remarkable about them is, and why I believe that that's the same water come back is that I have. Uh, there's a couple different bodies of water that are in no way connected to with creeks or anything, right? Like the only drainage yeah. is through, uh, out of them is is filters through the the muskeg and that. But otters will go across country every year in the same month. You know, like usually it's in November, just before, you know, season for, for me opens on the 1st of December. And yeah, they, they will, you know, they'll cut my trail because I'll be out doing Martin and Fisher at that point. And, and they go to, they'll go to this one little uh, body of water and they got to go cross country to get there and cross country back. And it's like they, they have that memory of, of where it is or, or the, you know, the, uh, the knowledge, right? So, yeah, yeah. I mean, oh, I'm I, sure. Yeah. I believe that that otter was in New Dangwell where there was some really good sushi. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, I've, I've had both mink and otter. I've had, I've had clients that were, I mean, they were in shock at the loss of fish over such a short period of time. I mean, even a single mink can go into a pond and just absolutely annihilate it. And, uh, one of the unfortunate things too, is when, uh, people are kind of, or municipalities, whatever it is, come, victim to these kinds of assaults, if you will, is the, the, the evidence left behind. Cause it's, it's not like they eat it and it disappears and goes out of the water, right? Like there'll be bits of body and like fish yep. stuff all over the yard. And yeah. these koi fish are, I mean, it's not something I'm not really into, but I mean, people are very, very passionate about their, their fishing with these koi fish. I mean, it's like a, a family pet to them, right? 
So it's always such like a horrible event. You're just like, oh, God, because they're just so distraught. And there'll be like 20 fish ripped apart across the lawn. And they're crying. You're like, oh, my God. Excuse Excuse my redneck here. (laughs) Well, yeah, I got in trouble once saying, you know, I I regarded as just a fish. And they like stopped me. And they're like, you don't understand. Like, these are my pets, right? Like, I've had them since I was a kid. It's like, holy smokes. Yeah. I'm sorry. Well, I mean, I was just astounded. It was like the, the person that I I knew, a, a Japanese fellow, and, and uh, when he explained it to me, and then he pulls out this book, and these are like the, the breeding history. Like, they, they, they have the whole ancestry oh, of every yeah. fish in their pond. Yeah. And it's like, and then I, I couldn't, I, I didn't laugh. I had I had to, uh, you know, I had to be respectful because, I mean, that was a serious, yeah. a serious thing to them. But when you think about it, you know, like, yeah, I, I can just imagine... You walk up and and uh, the mink or the otter have been there and they, they and they've just destroyed everything. <laughs> oh, everything! Yeah, it's awful. Yeah, and I mean, secretly you're kind of chuckling because you're just like, well, I mean, you, this is what happened when you put a pond right next to a river filled with mink. I mean, you're gonna, this is gonna happen, you know. Well, and kind of, you know, they all think that the animals all sit around the fire and hold hands and sing kumbaya, right? And you know, the disneyfication that, that that's going on. But that's probably something that you deal with more than than I do as the average trapper because you're doing the ADC stuff, right? There's a lot of uh, – and I, I used to argue about it, and I, I don't do that anymore. I've, I've learned that the arguing just takes it nowhere, and so it's more just about having a conversation and informing people. But there's a lot of very strong and passionate views um, that are – I don't like to say wrong, but they're just – limited in sort of what's going on with the animal. Like they're only people I, I found like they're very passionate. They like know certain things about an animal really, really well, but they're just, they don't know all the information or all the details or how that actually, you know, when you, when you then, for example, you take a, 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 a wolf family, you know, it's a great example because most people can understand this. When you take a wolf family and pups and you, view them at their den and they can seem very cuddly and cute and you can see all the intelligence and passion of the wolves. But then, you know, when you actually immerse that into the whole environment and see how they go and get their food, it's, you know, a completely different picture in a totally different world, right? Absolutely. And then you can see the, the viciousness and the brutality and the, the, the lack of remorse. You know, people have these ideas of animals and often they're, they're quite knowledgeable on certain parts of an animal, but not necessarily encompassing the whole story or sort of the whole effect that the this animal has on the environment and the environment can have on these animals as well as how they interact with other animals right it's usually part of a picture not the whole picture um and it's on both sides like i don't i don't like to say that that's only a particular group of people it's often the case for most people but um you run into that a lot in the urban environment when you're trying to deal with a situation and explain for example the the effects of management and um, using lethal methods versus uh, live capture and relocation and, and what the, the total effect is on that animal and also surrounding ecosystems when you do uh, live capture and relocation and things of like that. So, um, so you can, you can, uh, is it complicated to relocate animals? Like I, I've talked with uh, others in uh, ADC in uh, <clears throat> other jurisdictions and, and they can't, they can't release live anywhere else. Like so, uh, so for the yeah, I mean, first off, before we even talk about the effects on the animal, 
legally speaking, um, there's very few animals you can actually just relocate. Um, you're not allowed to just go get a cougar and take it elsewhere. Like all of that is permitted, right? Um, so but that aside, assuming you've got the approval to relocate and certain animals, it's okay. Other ones you have to get a DCL from fish and wildlife for approval or be, will be from the province essentially and not necessarily fish and wildlife, but the biologists or whoever. Right. Um, but that aside, and usually what I kind of, how do I explain it to people is everything has a territory. It's already set. Just because you don't see an animal there, doesn't mean that area isn't claimed. You know, it's, you look at a, a you know, let's say your average wolf pack, uh, let's say, uh, a, a relatively small range could be, I don't know, 300 square miles. Right. And that's not a, that's not a big range for wolves at all. Well, you don't see the wolves over that whole range, right? But nope. they'll defend every square inch of that to the death if they find anything in any part of it that's a problem for them, right? So Absolutely. If you take yeah, so if you take for example, and that's the same for all wildlife, and a lot of people don't realize that they they see certain ones as predators and ferocious and all that, but there is not an animal on the planet that will not defend its territory. It has to out of survival, right? Period. Um, so, you know, if you're, if people want you to relocate squirrels or relocate, uh, you know, uh, beavers or muskrats or whatever, so, something seemingly not that vicious that could handle relocation and everything will be okay. You don't have to go lethal. It's, you know, it, it, all the territory is already spoken for. So when you take it elsewhere, you're taking it away from its territory. So it's no longer home and you're dropping it off in another animal or animals homes and just saying, get along. And so. The analogy I usually say is just imagine you're, you're you're like coming downstairs to grab a sandwich. I roll under the house, bag you, tag you, take you off across city and drop you <laughs> off at someone else's house and say, have dinner there, right? Like, yeah. are you going to get along? No. No, my luck, you dropped me off at a vegan household. <laughs> <laughs> Hope you like kale. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so and a lot of people don't realize that right and, they, they, and then i also tell them you know the vast majority of animals that you relocate end up dying um uh either through um uh like uh, uh what, what would be the word sorry i'm having a brain fart uh through uh species, like the uh, members members of the same species just through competition okay so for example you drop a beaver off in a river elsewhere all that's going to be spoken for. The other beavers are just going to kill it. Yep. So the the two big things that happen are either it gets killed from um, its other me other members of the same species, or it dies as roadkill trying to get home. Right. Right. And it's like the vast majority of them are that. So how do people why take the being told that? Most of them kind of are shocked at it at first. Um, and then the other way I try to explain to it is you have to, you have to accept whether or not you are, um, willing to really be a part of it hands on or not. You still have to accept and take responsibility for your place on this earth. And the moment you took a spot, you took that spot from something else. You know, yeah. whether it's even just a house that was originally a field, you know, that would have been field mice. You know, the odd snowshoe here, you likely had a few snakes in there, all kinds of bugs and insects. I mean, there were things there that you pushed out of the way because you needed a spot to live. 
Yeah, but nobody and counts. You don't them, want. Right? Nope. No, no, no one does. No, no the those, mouse is those, probably the least. The, you know, the, the mice really would, bugs me. You know, sorry, Rich. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. So, mice. I mean, it's a little. It's slightly different from what I was talking about, but it's a good. It's a really important point to make. Um, there's virtually no control on mouse trapping, and it is arguably the most important species in the bush, simply for the aerating it does for soil, as well as the food it offers for, I'm going to say a conservative number, 90% of the predators right, are going to be taking mice. Yep. Whenever they have an opportunity, they're going to be taking it. All of your birds of prey are going to be on them. Um, a lot of your, virtually all your smaller um, terrestrial predators are taking them. Some of you even... You know, some fish will go after them, uh, you know, if we include water voles and things like that. It's a, of a very similar type of animal. A vast majority of predators are need these animals to survive at certain points of the year, right? And a lot of the soil, a lot, you know, everybody aerates their lawns, right? That's how you get a really healthy lawn. Right. That is literally millions of years of evolution of that grass needing things to dig holes into the dirt and aerate it. And so when you don't ever aerate, you don't have mice or uh, voles. In your lawn, nobody wants that, or pocket gophers or anything like that. It's not getting aerated. The natural cycle is that it does, and it's through these other animals, right? So it, it all has balanced and worked out. And it's an incredibly important species that gets pretty much zero publicity, zero regulation, um, and nobody cares about them. It's it's very upsetting. You know, you look at glue traps versus your classic Victor trap, and the reasons why people buy one over the other is because they're worried about touching the mouse or a mess or whatever. There's no care for the mouse or its well-being or how it goes at all. Yeah. Like, um, I mean, not by most anyways, I'm, I'm, I've killed more things than, than the Spanish flu, you know, and, and yet <laughs> <laughs> and the, the thought of the glue trap bothers the heck out of me. Like to me, that's crude. Yeah. That's unbelievably crude. It's, it's, it is. It, it's brutal. Yeah. And, and yet, um, you know, the same person who, who has, you know, no problems using that is then frowning at me for trapping a wolf, you know, an, an apex predator, which, you know, has, yeah. has this entire pyramid of, of small edible things underneath it to support that one, that one apex predator. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah, and so that's 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 where I see like just the lack of perspective from people in that, and so it's something you run into with work quite a lot, and that's why I was just pretty much how we're talking right now is how I talk with them. I turn it into a conversation right away, and it's the the because immediately they the moment they you offer this as a way to handle the animal, or they find out who you are and what you do, they immediately jump to I have an opinion, I'm gonna stand by, it, and I'm gonna argue against you, pretty much under the assumption that you're gonna argue back you know, or, or cower down because you have to listen to what they have to say. Right. Right. It's a very, very, it's like in a very, uh, um, invasive form of, you know, conversations. It's, it's not a debate really. Cause it's not, there's no curriculum or anything. It's just, it's very aggressive. Right. But the moment you turn into a conversation, like you can't argue with yourself. So the moment you don't engage with that and you just keep it as a conversation, they're basically forced to have to turn it into a conversation as well. It's just, you know, that's how we communicate, right? Absolutely. So it's just, it immediately diffuses and then it just sort of, it doesn't necessarily break down the walls, but it at least, you know, opens them up a little bit so they can just take in a little bit of what you're saying and you, you know, you take a little bit of what they're saying and then all of a sudden you can walk away and still respect each other at the, at the least. 
um, and then hopefully uh, inform, which is always the goal. So these people that you're talking with, you're having these conversations with, they are they, they've contacted Bushman Inc., your company, to for for problem animals, or are they land yeah, occupiers yeah, where and- where you've been hired by somebody else. Uh, you know, what are the situations? So the- that- so often they'll have a problem, um, uh, quite often residentially and in urban areas where you're going to predominantly see this kind of um, attitude is uh, they'll have a problem. They have an animal in the house and they want to get rid of it. But the way in wi- which we get rid of it is what they have a concern with. So explaining that to them. And there are certain animals we absolutely will relocate. And there's certain ones that we can relocate. And we're, we're very careful about that. But um, uh, for the most part, it's often better if we just go lethal uh, for the sake of other species and their environments as well. Um, so you kind of reduce your footprint, um, which I'll, I'll, I'll touch back on in a second. But then the other off, the other major one is especially working urban environments is you'll be working for a client and either a neighbor, a passerby or someone jogging on a bike, whatever it is, comes by and sees what you're doing. And that's, that's where you get the real confrontation and not necessarily conversation is someone else who's noticed what you're up to. And, uh, essentially completely disagrees with it without yeah, even really knowing what's going on for the most part. No, or being impacted by it. That's the best part, right? You know, yeah. Yes, it's, absolutely. it's so easy. It's so easy to, to talk about something that doesn't, doesn't affect you whatsoever. Right. <laughs> yep. 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 As, and even as simple as, you know, beavers, which are often people will say, leave them alone until they're taking all the trees down on your lawn or digging in and, now you've got your lawn caving in in portions. You're getting a lot of erosion because of the lack of a root system, whatever else, and which is all part of the cycle of, of beavers. But when it's on your doorstep and you now have to take the burden of that change in environment, you know, your attitude can switch pretty seriously, especially if you spent twenty, thirty thousand dollars planting trees, right? Or more. Well, and then there, then, then there was, um, was it last fall? Be, no, be fall of 2018 where People uh, were walking their dog, and the dog noticed a beaver swimming in a pond and went out to swam out to, to see it, and the dog ended up being drowned. And yep. these people were absolutely – they went from, from being Bambi huggers to, to Hellboy in, in about four and a half seconds when their dog went, went down, right? Like they, they, I, I, I can just see them, you know, because they, they were at the uh, – they ended up going to, to city council and ranting about how this was the city's – fault for not you know making oh, people yeah. aware that these kind of things could happen they're wild animals people a rabbit will or a muskrat i had a i had a muskrat make me shriek like a little girl uh, oh, yeah. yesterday i'm oh, yeah. i'm, I'm working a crossover <laughs> i'm working a crossover and, and you know there's you know the the, the typical uh two two feet of uh two foot arc of water out in front of me water running you know right uh under uh under the ice as i'm standing on the crossover right and right, I'm th- right. and I step down and and I'm just I'm so careful because I'm very close to being over the top my boots kind of thing and but all of a sudden uh, this muskrat pops up right at my feet tries to climb up climb up my leg <laughs> <laughs> and then ducks back underneath the ice and goes over the crossover right yeah yeah, yeah. well whether or not my my, my foot was going to get wet was the last consideration I had let me tell you. <laughs> Well, they bite. It's serious too. It's not a minor bite. No, no. I've I've got dogs that I've I've paid mortgage payments to have their face sewed back together after a muskrat took after them. You know, like I mean, and, and this is this is a little oh, tiny, yeah. 
It's a little tiny ball of fur with a with a scaly tail that that a, a mink half its size eats. You know, if yeah, if, yeah. if if like a, the weasel was was the size of a coyote, we, we'd never go to the bush. We'd be afraid to go to oh, the no, bush. Be, oh yeah, so it'd be. Then we'd all be praying for walls. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, what are your your most common calls? Oh, it really depends because we, I mean, we're operating across the, the province and in parts of BC and Saskatchewan. So it kind of depends on what level you're referring to. I mean, the industry is going to call for different things than your average resident will, right? But for your average urban environment, you know, a residential kind of setting, I would, I would say probably our most common is going to be squirrels. Okay. And they just get in people's attics. Right. Um, so, and 99% of the time it's because the soffit wasn't, uh, uh, properly uh, finished off. Okay. And uh, I don't know where it's called on the roof, but essentially it'd be good for everyone to look who, who are, is listening to this um, on your roof, especially if you're in an environment that has squirrels. It's essentially where you've got um, a, a change in levels on the roof and you'll have soffit coming down, touching shingle. Yep. I don't know what you'd call that. Is there a name for that? Depending on, on the, the style of architecture, but it's usually part of a gable. It's it essentially it's part of a gable. Like yep. if you have any kind of a gable protruding out from the main sort of ridge of the house, um, right in there, it's a really tight, tricky spot. So whenever anybody's sawing soffit, they basically just float in the last um, sheet. Hopefully, just one. Sometimes it's two or three. Um, they just float in, and yep. even the, the the trim and all of that is not even nailed in. It's all just floated in that last little bit, so it looks secure, but. You know, if you touch it with your hand, it, it'll it'll wave as easily as you can wave your hand, right? Right. Animals figure this out. You know, uh, I, I would I wouldn't be surprised if a serious portion, if not the majority, of squirrels in urban environments right now are actually born in people's homes. So they <laughs> they know from the time they're born where they go for shelter, which is in another roof with an attic, and pretty much every house um, I've ever been on that has that. I would say 99% have that problem. Really? Okay. Yeah, it's a it's a very high number. So, you're probably in, the one in 100 houses where that's not the issue. You're you're in southern Alberta near just north of yep. Calgary, aren't you? Or are you in Calgary? I live in Calgary now. Okay. Yeah. And there you have a you have both the red squirrel and the and the gray squirrel? Oh yeah. You have the the big one, the big the big dang squirrel like I mean. Yep. Yep, from out east, yep. Okay. Which is worse, the red squirrel or the big one? Oh, the gray squirrel. Is yeah. it? They're an invasive species. I mean, I, if my history is correct, essentially they were brought here roughly 100 years ago for food. Um, no kidding. They just brought them in and let them go for people to, to hunt and trap and be able to get food for themselves, right? Because it's it's actually, you know, one of those squirrels is a meal for someone. It's it's a significant so that was portion, like right? Great grandpappy Abercrombie that was thinking about you boys, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a make work project. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, they're those squirrels are a very serious problem in Calgary. They're actually killing off the native uh, red squirrel population. It's not a fact. Huh. Yeah, so we're, we're seeing less and less red squirrels. So red squirrels um, in the Calgary area, um, we do what we can to not have the lethal on them. Okay. Uh, just use other forms of exclusion, and the gray squirrel, uh, we we go lethal. Right. Um, I don't. I don't actually relocate them. 
And I've had clients say, I'm not paying you to, to kill them. I said, I'm not relocating that animal. They're overpopulated. They're a burden to this environment and they're not meant to be here. I'm not, I'm not relocating. Yeah. I, I, I don't suppose so. you could legally anyway, right? Well, I mean, you're not supposed to, but they're, instead of relocating, there's forms of exclusion you can kind of build, which I don't like to do anyways, because it doesn't really solve the problem. Um, uh, very common for most companies is to um, basically put a one-way door where they're getting in out of the house, seal everything else out. They go out, they can't come back in. Um, quite often, the babies are left in there to die yeah, um, yeah. because of the time of year when we get calls, which right. I don't also do. Um, but on top of that, that squirrel is still a squirrel that is going in and out of homes that's going to attack and rip apart your home, particularly if you've got that newer kind of house. Um, it's that sort of insulated, foamy yep. stuff on the outside. Yep. Um, they'll, they'll rip that to pieces trying to get back in. So rather than that, and it's basically a big make work project where you, you, you kick the squirrel out. It still wants in, it'll start damaging everything else trying to get back in, especially if it has babies and it's a female, it'll go berserk trying to get back in there. And then you're now fixing up the house afterwards. Um, and then you have a squirrel that eventually will leave. Um, that is now a problem for the house next door. That's and I'll just go to the, literally the next house over and go up in there. So, um, I, as far as I know, we're we're pretty much one of the only companies that uh, doesn't do those um, exclusions as a primary source of uh, uh, fixing the problem because it really doesn't. Yeah, I, I talked with the, you, you know Jim Gibb from um, I I think so. Yeah, from Toronto. He's he's uh, he was with the Wild Fur Shippers Council and all that too. Uh, oh yeah 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 yeah. Anyway, he he does ADC back there, and back there, of course, it's both yep. squirrels and and raccoon are are the, are the two big things. Yep. And he talked about yep. the exclusion stuff and that some people do that. And, and he says, literally, you're just moving it to the house, next house down the block, you know? That's what it is. That's all it is. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, and it works like there's, there's certain environments and I, I don't, I'm not trying to bash anybody does it that way, but you just have to be honest about what you're doing, which is not, you're not fixing the problem, which is a problem animal in this case, you're moving the problem, um, which is not the kind of uh, work I try to do. So. Sometimes we can end up being a little bit more expensive trying to get actually catch them and, and get them out of there. But uh, when when we walk away from a house, it's done. Period. End of story. So in those situations, um, are you you must be setting a trap where they're getting egress, right? Um, do you do you use uh, do you use like a, a live trap? You, um, that's my go to for squirrels. Yeah, a, a two-way door live trap. Yep, just yep. because it, it's the it's the easiest one to set up, and uh, often everybody wants me to do it in the attic or right where they're going in and out of the attic, and it doesn't really work that well. And squirrels are actually a bit more clever. You got to give them more credit than a lot of people give them. Um, they figure stuff out pretty quick, but they're also very very cautious. And another actually analogy I have to discuss with people because they so where I'll actually set is quite a ways away from the house, often on a shared fence or uh, a fence running between all the houses. It's like a highway for all the squirrels in the area. Oh, uh, cool. we'll, well, let's say if you've got five squirrels in your house, we'll probably catch eight or 10. <laughs> and we're going to catch surrounding squirrels, but we're also going to catch the squirrels in your house faster and get rid of the problem quicker. And so the way it works is, and the way it kind of explained to people is you have to understand that inside your attic, that is their nest. That's their, that's their sanctuary, right? Like that's where no other squirrels allowed. And that's the place where they're not scavenging for food or finding stuff. That's that's the bubble, right? 
So when you go inside there and set something up, they're not going into that saying, oh, wow, you know, look, here's a nice piece of food that wasn't here before. Because that's not normal, right? Ah, so if that, you put it out where there's where they're going to get stuff, they're anticipating being able to find something, they're going to go into those traps much more aggressively and much faster, and you'll get them much quicker. Ah, that's that's one of the questions I had was if you ever had an aha moment, you know, where you, you, you actually had some intuitive insight into the animal, and, and that's one of them right there. By not putting... That's all, I've, I'm all, that's all I got. That's all I got. <laughs> Been doing it my whole life, man. Yeah, that's cool though. I mean, I, I always, well, always you, that, you don't I, I see those things. What's that? You don't always see those things when you're just kind of trapping because often you're going to get a few and move on, right? Well, the that, moment you, the job is to get rid of every single one of them, the whole game, the whole aspect, everything just changes. Doesn't matter what species it is. No, that that's the truth too. That's the truth because I mean. Yeah. People, you know, one of the questions we get all the time with a TV show, especially when I'm doing rats, right? And so we're doing muskrats with, with floats or or with the uh, uh, the submarine traps. And now I can't even brag on my submarine catch. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I should have you on it. You could you could get all the hate mail. <laughs> they, they say you're going to kill them all, right? You're going to kill them all. You're going to wipe them out. And, and I try and tell them that you're never going to get the, the last one. But that's what you're looking to do. Because that's that's your job, oh, right? That's the job. Yeah, and that's it's a and, and you know to add to it, I said uh, with squirrels, for example, in the houses, and it can be all kinds of things, but with any animal, it's truth. You you never want to. It's like trying to set a foothold for a cow right outside the den. You right. know it's there. Yep. The last place you're going to want to put your foothold is right there because they're on such high alert there. Right. That's their spot. So. For squirrels and, and for any animal or any situation where we're dealing with it, they're always saying, but they're right there. I know they're there. Why don't you set it there? I tell them this. Imagine you're walking down the street a couple blocks from your house, doing your thing. It's a great, beautiful day. And you find, um, let's say, $5,000 cash. There's no way it's, it's, it's yours. You can, you, you, know, you can go report to the police. No one's going to say it's theirs. You get your $5,000. You feel really excited. The moment you see it on the ground, you're excited. You want to grab it. That's a good find. Now imagine you wake up first thing in the morning, your bedroom door is closed. You open your bedroom door to go out to, you know, go take your piss in the bathroom and there's $5,000 cash sitting on the, the ground right outside your door. Yeah. It wasn't there when you went to sleep. Are you thinking originally, nice, 5,000 bucks, or are you wondering how in the heck and who put that there? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because right? it's that, that didn't just appear there, right? And you're not expecting to find anything on the way to your bathroom. That's your bubble. Yep. When you're doing your business, it should be there. The moment you leave your door and go out of the house, your attitude changes on what you see. That, that's fascinating. That's a, that's a very good insight. And that's that was, like I said, one of the questions was was if you ever had an aha moment with the with an animal where you just intuitively made the leap. And I can see that one absolutely. I mean, I have the greatest respect for that because. I don't seem to ever have one. You know, I I can see it as soon as somebody else explains it to me. <laughs> My only advantage is that I'm this sponge and I never forget nothing. So that when 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 these situations come up, I can pull it out of out of my back pocket. Duncan told me about this, you know, <laughs> and, and I can take care of it. So that's how you you fool squirrels when you're talking about them running across the uh, the fences and that. It made me think of setting a bunch yep. of snares and, and hanging, you know, making it look like like Christmas uh, decorations hanging there. <laughs> that wouldn't go over oh, at yeah. all. Oh, the, the snares are a 
the snares are a fantastic one. It's just there's not often we can get away with it uh, in the urban environment. If it, if there's ever an opportunity where we can kind of tuck them in there, if it's a really nicely forested area, like it's a really, you know, usually the bigger properties with lots more green on them, snares are, that's, you, you're not going to beat them. That must be some, a little bit different to set for a big squirrel like that. Like, I mean, you got to, you got to. Oh yeah. It's a lot bigger loop and a lot higher. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's cool. Okay. So yeah, it's, now it's, we're... it's, it's different and they really, what... the, the gray squirrels just have a heck of a lot more fight when they initially get caught. So everything's a bit, you got to be a bit more. A little bit heavier, huh? Okay. Yeah. And then the, the biggest mistake usually is not enough, uh, wire on the pole so they can't you know let them hang low enough down oh yeah because the amount the amount typically you're running for a red squirrel it's not enough for a, a gray squirrel no i would imagine not and then it just becomes a no and then it's a nightmare call when they say the squirrel's in it alive on the pole and you're going oh my god yeah <laughs> <laughs> i gotta go take care of this and um fire bobby <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Mental uh, note, fire Bobby. Yeah. I told him. <laughs> okay, so when we're we're talking about now that we're it's our job to get rid of the last one, you got to tell me now. My thoughts would be the toughest would be the last beaver in a pond. Oh, hands down. Yeah, they're they're pretty damn Without smart. Without a doubt, hands down. I have you. And the have, number one reason. Oh, what's that? Oh, sorry, go ahead, Rich. I was astounded the first time that I, I took and used caster from a, from another beaver, from another pond. Right. And I took and made a yep. caster mound and I'm just doing my stuff. You know, you, you know how it is. You're, you're, you're all inside your head. And all of a sudden I hear splash, you know, and all of a sudden beavers come up. I, oh, hadn't, yeah. ex I hadn't expect beaver to come up, uh, you know, that time of day. And I watched him and he went back and forth like an old hound dog cutting the smell, you mm -hmm. know, like he, he sniffed mm -hmm. his way. I would have never believed that a water animal would do that. Like, I mean, he literally like was, was like an old hound dog on, on a trail, sniffed his way right into that, uh, that new caster mound that I made. I mean, I ended up catching him no time flat. I mean, I watched it all happen, but he was so angry and he was chomping his teeth and everything. I thought that's a lot more intelligence that I gave them credit for, you know, mostly it's probably well, just. Pure instinct, right? I, I, you know what, beavers are—they're uh, an interest. I mean, I—I I have done a lot of beaver trapping, and literally in every kind of environment you can possibly do it in. And I don't trap beavers for a few months of the year. I'm trapping them twelve months a year, and I've been doing that since the day I could set a trap. Right. Uh, so I've I've put a. A thousands and thousands and thousands of hours into trapping beavers, and every single time the job is to get rid of all of them. There is not an animal out there I've found that can make me more humble. And I, a lot of people are say wolves and coyotes, but the number one difference I found was that because um, the canines are predators, there's a certain aggression that they just can't get rid of that if you're very, very subtle with. You can get them to bite on always. Right. And I mean, a very smart, you know, even a, a very smart female coyote, particularly a female coyote, that is no joke. That is a, that is a very difficult animal to catch, but there's just certain things you can make them tick with because they're predatory. They're much more mobile and they're used to being out and about and abroad. There's just certain ways you can sort of catch them and, and get them off guard. The problem with the beaver that makes them so difficult. And, and if you got a, a, a colony that's got 10 beavers, 
you should be able to catch at least six out of the 10 the first night, if not the first two nights, no questions asked. The next two, you should be able to catch within the next two or three days. The next one, you'll catch within the next probably, you know, we're up to, let's say, about a week now. That number 10 beaver, the number 10 beaver on a 10 a beaver colony, I would not surprise you if you're not good at what you're doing. That could take you two weeks or even two months. Really? <laughs> because you're just, it's it's a game of chess, right? And if you're not careful in what you do, that's what ends up happening. And the, the biggest problem with beavers is because they're not predators. They're sort of, a, you know, they still have very strong instincts towards territory. They're very aggressive at, at maintaining territory. But because they're not predators, they're able to sort of just go on the defensive and just relax and wait you out. And because they're in the same area every single night, it's this is the pond or it's this section of creek. They're, they're, they're not out and about covering vast areas, right? They know, and believe me, they know every single leaf yeah. on that shoreline. They know every single stick, everything there, they know, especially when they learn that they need to know. There's nothing they don't miss. Nothing. I, I was, And then you add that with an incredible sense of smell and, you know, a very intelligent animal. They're just a, they're a challenge. My biggest learning, and this goes back quite a few years, but I was had been tasked to, with getting rid of everyone, right? And I was literally down yep. to the last one. And it was like yep. I was ready to to call in a nuclear strike on that pond. It was that oh, bad. Yes. I mean, there was just no winning against this. <laughs> and and one of the biggest things I learned was that he had a whole series of bank dens, and he'd move from one to the next to the next, you know? And that was oh yeah, that was the difficult. What's what's your number one go to when you when you, when you got a tough one? What what set do you use on them? Uh, it depends on the environment, and I'm I'm not going to be trying to. I'll give you like a couple, but essentially, when you're doing problem wildlife control and you have to get rid of all the beavers, you need to walk up there the first day. And look at every single piece there and literally look at how this is all going to go down before you set a trap. Right. So, so when you see that, if it's a pond or a creek or whatever it is, you see where they're cutting, you see the trails, um, you know, places where you can put different traps, what you need to start prepping right away. Uh, that all has to be in your head before anything happens. If it's not, then you're, you're going to hamstring yourself on the last one because you've got to have that next move, that next one that they haven't seen yet to catch the next beaver, right? Okay. So it changes depending on, you know, whether there's a lot of dams or whatever else. But um, my go-to, um, if there's a lot of uh, dams, um, I'll avoid actually as best I can trapping on the dam. Okay. Or or if there's a series, I'll never trap the main dam. I'll trap further down. And then uh, a great finisher is always going to be uh, just a blind foothold on the dam. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the blind... whether, it's, whether it's on the trail or... Or just, you know, you do a little finger-sized notch of water where they're coming with just a small little bit of mud, nothing crazy. Uh, those are often my best finisher. But uh, the the other one's always just going to be um, with caster, either using a 330 or uh, uh, a foothold. Or um, oddly enough, and a lot of people get shocked by it, but it's just because they haven't seen it, those uh, briefcase traps. Really? The Hancock trap. Yeah. Have you ever seen? Oh, yeah. It's a lights out, lights out killer. Because it's a totally different look and it's very open. There's no, you're not, um, the biggest problem with 330s is a lot of people don't realize, unless you're in a really deep creek system, 
the angle that a beaver sits at in the water when they get up close to the trap often skylines uh, silhouettes the trap in the skyline. Yep. So it stands out really, really easily yep. to them, particularly right at dawn, right? When you've got black and then the nice bluish hue in the sky. Exactly. And it just, you know, they know right away what it is. So the Hancock and the foothold, there's no skylining. Right. And that, and as well, you can really limit smell, right? So those ones are my go-tos. Um, and then if I need to use a caster and with that, I will. But uh, the blind set for anything is often my best for a finisher. So when you start then, would you start with, uh, you know, so you, we've got these 10, 10 beaver there to get those first six. Are they, are those going to be like three thirties? Is that going to be what you're going to start with? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Unless I've got a real gravy spot where I can just pick them off one after another. Um, like if, if time isn't critical, like if, if this is a municipality that I'm doing the work for and I've got, you know, 50 different areas I'm trapping that day, However much I'm taking out of any one colony any given day doesn't matter because I'm there for the day regardless. So their bill doesn't change. Right. So I'll trap those actually a little bit slower. So it'll just be a beaver every day. But every day I come there, it's a beaver off a very basic sort of blind set that just, they just don't figure out. Right. And you just, you just got to take it easy. Don't go crazy. You know, find one nice little set, even if it is a foothold on the, uh, the dam and just take your one a day and you can literally get you know, 90% of them off of one type of catch, which is great because then you've got lots of options for your last one, right? Or last couple of beavers. But um, if it's, for example, uh, uh, a farmer who's hired me, who, you know, time is of the essence, they don't, you know, they don't want to spend $10,000 on beavers. They want to spend a thousand or 500 or, or whatever. And so for those ones, um, my first day, I'll give one day before I go close to the lodge and uh, I'll basically get as far away as I can Often I find the big the big jumbo uh, male is going to be further away from the rest uh, the rest of them, and I'll try to get him first night on some dinky little one that like doesn't even look like a beaver is ever there that much. That male is always checking those spots up always. Oh really? So if you, as long as you can draw always, so as long as you can draw his attention, you'll get that male right away. That will kind of dumb up the 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 couple of two year olds that are wandering around, kind of following him. Then you can pick them off quickly the next night, a little bit closer to the lodge. And then right away, I go into um, a caster set to get mama and hope that she hasn't figured me out yet. Because the, the the old female beaver is always going to be your smartest one. and That'll be your hardest one to get. Uh, so she'll always be a bit closer, I find. So I'll jump to a caster right away just to try and challenge her and get her. And then whatever's left. Usually it's going to be pretty skittish and spooked and I'll just start setting uh, the lodge as quietly as I can. Like no talking, no breaking sticks, just really soft feet set up on the lodge and uh, pick off what is left. And then whatever remains, I can usually get on the dam uh, with a foothold. I know that so many people do not understand beaver very well because I get so many emails and PMs and that and say, well, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, trap these beaver for, for this farmer. And then I tore out the dam and, but they, they just keep, you know, filling, uh, my three thirties with, uh, with sticks and that, you know, and, and, and I, I try and tell them the last thing you want to do is, is open that dam up, you know, but people just don't understand that. Yeah. Right. Well, it's a, and that's a bold statement. I mean, if, if you go to that point, you are making a big statement to those beavers. And the, the number one thing I always try to uh, teach as well, because I, I teach the trapping course and that, and teaching people who work for us, um, you never want to change the animal's routine. 
till you have to. Until you're forced to play that card, don't play it. Let it do its own thing. Be good at what you do and learn how to go to it. Don't make it come to you. And you'll always get more and do it way more subtly. So, for example, if you've got coyotes, you've got to get. If you're using bait and and, uh, piss and lure and and, uh, other coyotes poop and drawing it out to you, there's a lot of suspicion there. It's still a very natural thing that's going on, but there's flags that are starting to be raised, right? Right. Because this stuff wasn't here before. So if you can if you can avoid that off the get go and just find where it likes to do where it, like, it likes to go and sit there, you'll pick them off and you're not you've given away nothing as to what you're doing, and the coyotes don't know how to or whatever animal it is doesn't know how to learn off that right right they're just dying off. <laughs> Ralph's disappeared. So, <laughs> yeah, he's just gone. Right. Yep. Yeah, there's there's nothing worse than teaching them. That that's a fact. So oh, and and it's inevitable. So trying to be ahead of that, right? You always got to be that step ahead. You guys have a kind of a special program for working with coyotes. Yeah. Um, we help out uh, different industries and municipalities, sometimes uh, people basically with problems with coyotes that aren't. Um, these The coyotes in particular that we, we deal with with the program we're mm, issuing is uh, not coyotes that are separate from your environment coming in and sort of you know, scavenging around or doing a little bit of hunting and then disappearing. These are coyotes that are living amongst the area we're working in. So these are what we refer to as urban coyotes. Okay. Um, so if you were to, if you were to take a city, for example, this is, these are coyotes living in the city, not coyotes in the urban or the rural area coming into it to try to get an easy meal. These are coyotes born and raised in and amongst people um, that we've been uh, uh, dealing with. And basically it's gotten to the point now uh, through a, a series of uh, – it's a result of several things happening. But essentially, there is no uh, provincial body that handles uh, uh, urban wildlife anymore unless there's a direct threat with people or it's going to be a cougar or a, a bear, essentially. Some cases, a wolf. But the Fish and Wildlife doesn't respond to there's a coyote in my yard. No. It doesn't happen. No. They used to, but they don't. It's literally – it's not their job anymore. It's not what they do. It's up to the municipality. But because there's no body in charge of it, unless a contractor or somebody is hired, they go completely unscathed. And so for a few years now, this has been the case. And we're now at a point with a lot of coyotes where they've just been getting away with doing whatever they want with vir- virtually no repercussion for, um, I-, I would argue, the better part of about a decade now, up to a few years ago when we started doing this hazing program. Um, so. We're at a point where the coyotes are so established and there's so many coyotes in these urban areas and their territories are um, – it's amazing how small of an area they need in an urban environment because of the availability of food. Primarily, it's going to be snowshoe hare and cats and small dogs. <laughs> there's just such an abundance of that that it's just – yeah, it's uh, – it's like buying koi, so, koi for the I, for the otters. <laughs> oh, it literally, yeah. Like it's just – it's an endless supply. So, um, because of that, they need very, very small territories. And as a result, you're able to have these huge populations in tight areas, um, that, uh, are operating in and amongst people. And, and so trapping them for these coyotes doesn't work. And I'll, for two reasons. Number one, when you're in an urban environment trapping anything, it's a challenge. 
the, the nice thing about water or dealing with beavers or anything like that is you're kind of separate from where everybody typically goes. Yeah, and you're not. That, or if you're dealing with squirrels or whatever it is, you're not going to get tuck into the house, tuck into the riverbank. Exactly. Yeah. Well, when you're dealing with coyotes, they're literally exactly where everybody is going. They're using the same walkways, they're using the same trails, they're doing the same things. So, trying to trap them is an incredibly um, large task. And and no no virtually no municipality wants to um, be uh, exposed to this kind of method. They just don't want to deal with it because there's going to be flack. Whether you whether you think it's right or wrong doesn't matter. It exists. There's going to be flack, and it's not worth it for most. Well, it isn't worth it for any municipality or any politician to deal with the flack associated with uh, lethal removal on a broad scale. And for something like a coyote, they just don't they don't want to have to deal with it. So now on top of Avoiding catching people's dogs or small kids or, or whatever it is, you have to do it without anybody knowing you're there. So the cost associated with it is huge. It's thousands and thousands of dollars per coyote. And uh, you really have, don't have any effect on the overall population because you're so limited in what you can do and where you can go. Part two of it, and this is an interesting one. A lot of people don't realize. Um, all species are they're the the level of stress. And sort of the amount of territory that they're being pressured on from adjacent territories, um, their litter size is directly correlated to that. So the number of babies they have um, dictates how healthy essentially that female is and how much stress she is under. Okay. Um, some species you get more than others. Uh, lynx, for example, when you start seeing lots of uh, uh, multi kitten. Um, uh, 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 I don't know what you would call it. Uh, like a family unit? Years where you've got mom with a Yeah, family. You've got, you know, some years you're not seeing any kittens. You know they're really down, right? They're just aborting them. Then you start to see one kitten following mom. And then as the population gets healthier, you'll see, you'll start to see more and more two kittens or three kittens following mom. Or like the, and then they'll sort of cycle off and die off, right? Like the eight, eight kitten herd that was on my line yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that would. I would say you're peaking. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> it's worse because they peaked all right. Mum went and checked out one of my snare pins, and they ate mum. So, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The last, the last gift of the lynx mom gives. Yeah. <laughs> but and I would also argue that's likely the result of healthy management as well. So kudos to you. But uh, um, so coyotes in particular. Because they're canines, anybody who's been around dogs that have pups, you get large breeds. And dogs that breed, that we breed, we get massive litters from. We've bred that in. But also, you've got incredibly healthy animals that are under virtually no stress, not having to fight for any territory. It's all covered by us. Excuse me. So, they have great big litters as a result. Um, if you take an area, you know, around Brooks or southern Saskatchewan where we've got, you know, southern... Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta is basically, and the, the northern states associated with those ranges is the mecca of coyotes in the world, right? Yep. That is coyote mecca. Yep. Um, vast areas of land, big ter uh, terrains that these coyotes can cover, and they're able to have their dens a long ways from other coyotes. And you've got trappers taking, you know, Alberta alone, we're taking anywhere between 30 and 50,000 coyotes every single year. Well, how is that possible? Um, the way it works, and coyotes are a great example because it's so obvious and it ties exactly what we're talking about in the urban environment. If you've got um, a coyote family and uh, it's a great year, there's no other real coyotes around, 
um, the mom is, let's say, is going to have anywhere between six and 10 pups easily. You could have 10 pups. You might not bring 10 all the way through to adulthood, but you could easily start with 10 on a very healthy female. Uh, I, you'd probably see three of them die off before they even made it to July. But uh, that is absolutely 100% realistic numbers. As that disper those disperse, those now become breeding pairs the following year. You now got more dens in the area. Because there were pups that year, that mom might get one more year, maybe six or seven pups. And after that, now pups from two years ago, they don't really give, they don't really care about mom that much anymore, right? They're now a completely independent coyote and they're now fighting for territory with their mom. That's going to cause more stress on that mom. Now this year, she's not going to have six or 10 pups. She might have four to five. And essentially, as you get the area packed up with coyotes, you're only having two or three pups a year. What you see in urban environments right now is that two to three pups because there's no room for anything else. They're under a lot of stress. So they're having minimal numbers per year. The moment you come through and trap a large portion of those coyotes, you've eliminated all the stress. Literally the following year, you'll see those numbers shoot right back up. Yeah. So yeah. in an urban environment, if you go ahead and take a few you know, dominant pairs out of the equation, You've now opened up all of the, the territory in the area. You don't have a dominant pair defending a large range. You've just opened it up. And now all of these two-year-old and one-year-old females are going to have, you know, five or six pups instead of two or three. And so the following year, you've literally just created more coyotes, not less coyotes. So by, by keeping the dominant pairs in an urban environment, and by the way, that's why those people in Manitoba, Alberta, and all that are able to trap those coyotes every single year. It's because they're trapping them every year that they get those numbers every year. If they weren't trapping them, you wouldn't have those numbers overall in the population. That's true. You would see mange, shoulder mites, and all that pop yep. up, and they would die off, and the cycle would go on, right? Yep, exactly. So trapping is literally how there's that many coyotes because we're, it's, that's healthy, healthy management, right? Minimizing stress, you're maximizing the 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 uh, litter size, and you're creating continual, very, very healthy um, dominant coyotes. So in an urban environment, uh, to avoid that, you want to keep the dominant pairs around. And what we do for the hazing is teach those dominant pairs so that they maintain their den. We know where they are. We know how to operate with them. And all the pups that they have from now till they die are being taught the methods we want them to learn, which is that they need to be respectful around particularly dog walkers, but people in general, dogs off leash, they need to know how to back off and let the dogs go by rather than engaging and all that stuff. And we want that being taught year after year. Okay. Not have to redo it every single year, right? So the hazing program we're doing, um, we essentially use um, chalk-filled uh, balls out of a paintball gun. So um, it's a chalk ball so that it can't mark the color of the, the fur on the coyote at all. So there's an argument. I mean, it's I don't think there's a ton of merit to it, but it doesn't matter. It's a rule regardless that if you use paint-filled balls, the color will ruin the camouflage of the animal, and it won't be able to hunt as successfully, so you're not allowed to use paint. Oh, okay. Um, which if, if if you've actually fired and operated and used these these paint guns and all that, it's really just not a, it's not a concern. But regardless, it's a rule. So we use chalk balls, paintball guns, and then we also have trained dogs that will basically simulate a dog off leash, but in close quarter walking with an owner. And if the coyotes engage, the dogs are trained to engage back along with us using the uh, chalk-filled uh, paintball guns. And basically, if the coyote backs off right away, 
we back off right away. And if it wants to engage, we engage. And we'll engage as long as it wants to engage until it learns that if it stays roughly about 100 meters back, um, especially if it wants to disappear or take off, that's rewarded. And we just kind of keep doing our thing. And uh, the more aggressive they get, the more aggressive we get with paintballs and actually making contact. Sorry, chalk balls, I should say. Making contact with the rounds, um, which because often we don't make contact. They're just hit around the, the animal to get them to realize, oh, there's something coming at me. And then the dog running after them as well is enough to get them to run. Our dogs are trained to stop after about 100 meters, come back towards us. If the coyote engages inside of that, the dog goes back out, re-engages, and just sort of establishes that buffer. And then eventually what it gets to a point with these coyotes is uh, we're able to show up in a green space. And, uh, well, the coyotes know us. Like, they'll spot us two miles out on, like, a big park area. And literally, there could be 100 dog walkers in the area. And they don't, they don't care. They're, they're enjoying the sun rays, doing their thing. The moment we show up, it's ears up, and they're looking right at us, at us going, oh, okay, there's trouble. Yeah. <laughs> they know us. Like, absolute. Um, so – uh, it'll get to a point where they just basically, they want nothing to do with us and they'll just disappear. But the result is um, people stop having their dogs attacked on leash and, and and we sort of pick areas where the coyote gets to be. So um, you don't want to always engage the coyote if you sort of look at this is the trail where people are walking. This is my buffer. What's the area here where the coyote just gets to be a coyote? We need to give it a space as well. So if it's not where the coyote is, we think that's the space we want it to go we're able to haze and guide them routinely into that spot and then back off. And they learn that that's their sanctuary. That's their safe spot. And then that's where they stay. So how long have you been doing this? The hazing we've been doing a few years now. We've been doing the coyote management for as long as I've been working. But um, this newer form of hazing is, I think, uh, about our fourth year now. Um, coming into our fourth year, we've been doing it, and the it's it, it works. It really Do you think works. it's a long term solution? Yeah, it's as of right now the only long term one we've been able to uh, figure out. Now it doesn't; it's not a one and done. It does require maintenance. You have to maintain that level. Certain coy- coyotes are like people. There, there's a major spectrum uh, you know as far as attitude as far as aggression and boldness and all that they're not all the same there's certain coyotes we literally haze once and never see again okay and we know they're there we track them we know they're in the area but you will literally never see them the whole community will be like yeah no there's, the coyotes are gone it's great thanks and other coyotes we will go to every single day <laughs> and have lengthy hazes and it's yeah it's, <laughs> they're individuals for sure yeah like you name one of them after your brother Malcolm, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was a Malcolm the Third, the Malcolm. Yeah. The third, the <laughs> so, what is the scariest animal you ever had to handle? Like handle with my hands? Well, I don't know whether or just work with to, to uh, you know. You must have had a, a scary situation. I told you about mine yesterday with muskrat crawling on my leg, but you know so, something something that was uh, you know a, a little unexpected. You know, I had a guy just send me um, a video, and and they had to uh, release a uh, mountain lion that they caught in a foothold, and you know, and I mean, and it, it's in a uh, an offset trap, so I mean, the mountain lion runs away, but it's pretty hairy getting them out of there. You know, I mean. Have you had any situations oh, yeah, yeah. like that? Uh, 
I really try not to. Um, I, uh, I honestly, probably routinely the most dangerous is going to be domestic dogs. Really? And it's when we show up on someone's property. Yeah. And I've, I've had to boot and fight back and have some pretty good matches with a few dogs. That's, that's because nine times out of 10, the owner's pretty cool, but uh, sometimes they're pretty upset. That's your urban camo though. You got to quit wearing post office uniforms, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that must yeah. be it. Yeah. But uh, this is actually why we have part of a policy, especially in more rural areas where you're typically going to run into more of your uh, Maramas and Great Pyrenees, which are classic, you know, guardian dogs for ranches and things like that. Is we'll idle for uh, if we're doing a door knock, we'll idle for probably ten minutes before we get out and honk the horn a couple times. Gotcha. Just to make sure that the dog is not out and about because the last thing you want to do is, is show up on someone's property and engage their dog. And either we get hurt or the dog gets hurt. That's never a situation. We want. No, it's not. A, it's not an acceptable one ever, but um, it happens, especially when we ask someone, is the dog good? And they say, yeah. And then we're start walking out and the dog's not good. Right. Right. And uh, dogs are probably routinely the most scary because there's some big dogs out there and it's not, uh, it's not a joke when they're coming at you. So. Not at all. That's probably the most one. But as far as as far as wild animals go, um probably the most dangerous. Um I mean re relocating uh uh badgers and uh, otter and that is hairy and they really try to bite you. Um, yeah, I can imagine the only, the only but you're, you, disadvantage that a badger has is he's short-legged. Uh, I've always said, though, that the otter had the best PR man in the world because they are the most utterly ruthless animal that I have on my trap line. And people look at me and think like I'm crazy. I don't know. <laughs> Literally, it's everyone thinks they're just the cuddliest, cutest thing. And, and they are, but I mean, you want to talk about ruthless and just brutal animal. I mean, try being a, 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 a beaver kit. It's June for you, right? And an an otter family just rolls up into the lodge and just massacres everything and takes off. Like it's just, like they're a savage animal. And when you're live capturing them, they kind of look a bit fatty. And you know, when you skin them, they've got a really nice heavy layer of fat on them. But when you grab a hold of one and it doesn't want you to, when they flex, uh, you would swear there was not a single ounce of fat on that. Yeah, that it was like they are a solid. Animal. Yeah, just like it was like it was a steel cable. I my my otters are unbelievably oh, yeah. fat, and I look at it like this: when a predator is that fat, he's real good at, at killing. You know, <laughs> that's right. It's for a reason. Yeah, it's not by mistake. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I probably my closest call has been uh, beavers. Um. Certain times we've had beavers that, uh, and it happens. Um, it's never something we 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 strive for, and always you want to learn from it and not repeat it. Which is, I take pride in doing that. But once in a while, you'll have a beaver that's still alive in a trap. Yeah. Uh, the vast majority of the time, it's because it's trap smart and was trying to push the trap out of the way. It just did something weird, oh, yeah. uh, and you end up catching one that's still alive. And I've had situations where uh, I was having to deal with that, which is typically a very, very quick process uh, when people happen to show up or walk up or walk by. And this is now the last thing yeah. you want. So yeah. <laughs> rather than them seeing that situation, you're better off like just, you know, throwing the beaver in the boat with you and letting the, the river take you down or, or whatever the situation may be and just handle it quickly right. then. So you can at least float it away or disappear. But uh, while that's happening, they're usually not that happy about it. So. It's all that's I think that's happened once or, or twice. It's it's always spooky and scary because 
you've got the moment someone shows up, you still have to deal with this animal. And often what they're going to do is cause more stress to the animal. They're going to be spooked. They may try to stop you. They may try to intervene, all of which is increasing the danger for them, yourself. And it's also increasing more harm to the animal, right? Yeah, so I mean, it always seems like, you know, why wouldn't you just deal with it and let them see you? But it just the reality is, is often the spectators don't um, don't necessarily allow that to happen. And it's just not a risk you can ever take. So you have to just get them out of there or hope they walk by before you can deal with it. And in the meantime, you've got a live animal on your hands. Right? Well, and I always look at it like this. I mean, with, with our TV program, uh, we, we abide by all the laws. And I mean, it, all, most trappers do, right? It says that you must yeah. dispatch an animal as humanely as possible. Well, that can be done with with yeah. with a, a ball peen hammer as as easily as as with a a, a twenty two round between the eyes, but you're not going to show that on TV. My, I carry, <laughs> I carry, I carry an axe with me everywhere, and the backside yep. of an axe. I have an axe I use. It's an old east yep. wing. The backside of it has put down more animals than any of the twenty two. I, I know, I know, and it's uh, it's better because you, you don't you're not taking time to get a gun ready. You're not worried about aiming. It's just a real quick. It, bonk and done and the first one doesn't have to kill him just it knocks him out completely and then you can take your time to put a perfect one in there but yeah it's the it's the go-to absolutely absolutely i i I, bet I have the same s wing actually i'm pretty sure i cut my half cut my wrist off with, with with one that i get this thing about keeping sharp things that have sharp edges sharp and anyway but i, I i'm sure i have the the same thing as you but it's that perception right oh he clubbed it to death you yep. know like they 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 forbid clubbing seals and, and you could shoot them with a rifle. Well, I'm guaranteeing you that, that anybody who was close enough and in with range with that hack pick or whatever they, that, that club is that they use in Newfoundland is far more deadly than it than half the people shooting 20 or 30 yards across the ice with a gun, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. And the, 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 I, the, the big thing is, when you so whenever I'm dealing with beavers, um, I've always got the axe like ready when I'm going because you never know if there's something you have to do with. It's very rare, and I want to emphasize to anybody who's listening as well: it's not something you you strive to do. And, and certainly, whenever you have an, a, a wreck with a trap, it's it's a worst case scenario, and it is very rare. I want to make that known. But when you're doing it, the last thing you want to do is increase the stress, the strain, or the pain, whatever it is, the duress to that animal. You just want it to be dealt with as quickly as possible. Absolutely. Period. End of story. For for nine times out of ten, uh, for one for one ahead. thing, as as a trapper, at that moment you feel you know you you're you're, you're embarrassed because you failed. You know the the animal is yeah. oh, it's a heart it's a heart wrenching yes. experience. Yeah, no, and people don't understand that. But I mean, at that moment you failed, and and, and you feel you you feel kind of uh, you know you feel bad because it sh- it should have been over and done with, right? And that's what you want to do is is finish yeah. it quickly. Yeah, and that's the goal. And, and so an axe, um, so, and I, I've, I've taught guys this as well, is um, anywhere, most importantly, you want to immobilize. You don't, for some of the bigger animals, it's a bit easier. Um, some of the smaller ones is actually can be a bit challenging to get a perfect strike on the head because they're not going to let you. They're going to try and dodge the axe. Um, other ones, certain animals don't as much. Other animals, they really try to dodge it. So um, if you try to swing for the fences, your first throw often you're going to end up causing more damage and not necessarily putting them down but 
with an axe, if it's all steel, the nice thing about it is it's basically like a bat, essentially. So any contact anywhere along there is good. And any strike above the shoulder blades up to the head is going to render it immobile and pretty much semi-conscious to unconscious state. Any strike anywhere, just that area in the spine, you're just regist- you're turning everything yep. off, right? Yep. I, so, I had... Quick blow, and if it requires a second, I had, I had had a situation like that. The animal was, was, was had um, managed to uh, knock knock the trap over, and it was a, a bad catch, right? In the in a three thirty on on land, yeah. And same thing. It was the it was an otter, so I mean it was it was moving it was moving fast, and and uh, kept dodging, right? And I, what I ended up doing was just yeah. pulling my you know those gauntlet gloves that I wear, pulling it out, flipping it out, and shoving mm-hmm. it in front of the face. And of course, he latched onto it like end of the world right he was he was biting me right yeah that held his head nice and mobile <laughs> that's the uh when we were my old man taught me this when we were muskrat trapping because every once in a while you you'll have one that doesn't jump down or you literally just caught so when you pull it up and out like it's it's it can be still alive and um the the best thing is to let the animal think they're winning just like you said so for them in particular we always carry a wood handle backs because you don't need anything heavy to, to nope. put them out you put it right in front of their nose and they'll just latch onto it to bite it. And it sort of positions it perfectly. And it's just a quick rotation of the wrist on top of the head yep. and done. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that works great for most animals. A quick bite. There you go. You got your bite in, rotate the wrist and snap and that's all yeah. it takes. <laughs> well, you know what? This has been fascinating. We're going to have to do it again. Um, do you... Uh, Give us some contact information that people want want to talk uh, to you guys about problem animals. Uh, your company is Bushman Inc. And how can they get a hold of you? Bushman Inc. But the main the main company, as far as the wildlife control stuff, is Animal Damage Control. Um, we're, we operate pretty much. We're primarily an Alberta company, but we have operated particularly for industry across Western Canada. Um, you can always find our website. It's just animal damage control. Um, you can also get through us at Bushman Inc. You can, it'll redirect you because we do uh, outdoor stuff as well and teaching of that sort. Um, and then uh, our office is based out of Fort Saskatchewan. So anybody that wants to get a hold of us, the best thing to do is get our website. There's a toll free number as well as our local number. Um, and uh, we can pretty much help you out with whatever. Well, it has been a pleasure, Duncan. Lots of laughs. I'm uh, Sorry about the coughing that I've uh, fit I've had uh, with uh, this cold. I've had a man cold, and I mean, as a man, you understand how how serious that is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I will I will take it sign off. And thank you so much for for being a guest uh, uh, tonight. We've had a great time. Yeah, thanks for you having bet. me. And thanks everybody for listening. And maybe we'll see you down the line. Take care.